please take out a Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 2. On several occasions, working in college ministry at the University of Memphis, we came across a Muslim girl named Bijou. Bijou was a devout Muslim. She was from Western Africa. And if I were to describe her quickly, I would tell you she did not like Jesus. She did not like Christians. And she really, really liked to argue. One of the distinct things I remember about her is that she always seemed angry. It's like every time we encountered her, it was like she was carrying these really heavy burdens and she just wanted to take them out on you. One night, I got a call from one of our college students who was so excited I could hardly understand her. She called me to tell me that Bijou, in the middle of an argument, had placed her faith in Christ. The changes in her were so evident. For not only did she now love Jesus, she began to love Christians. One of the sweet parts of that story is she attended our church for about six months before she returned back to her home country. What I remember about that is that this person I'd met who seemed so burdened, so weighed down, and so angry, I got to see free. I got to see unburdened. I got to see her walk freely. It was an awesome thing to see. Friends, this morning we're continuing our series on evangelism. That we as a church, that we as believers of Jesus Christ might be awakened. That we might be awakened to our calling as followers of Christ. I want to remind you of the words of Jesus to Peter and Andrew when he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I want to remind you of the words that Jesus prayed in the upper room, prayed with his disciples and prayed for you when he prayed, I do not ask for these only but also for those who would believe in me through their word. Church, Jesus was anticipating we would go out, that we would proclaim the good news. So he didn't just pray for us, he prayed for those who would believe because of our words. Finally, I want to remind you of the final words of Jesus before his ascension. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Church, you've received the Holy Spirit, correct? Therefore, you have received power, correct? And so Jesus has given us everything we need and has declared that we will be his witnesses. Now, I'm not a grammar person. My wife can attest to that. I dabble in it from time to time. But there's something we should pick up from these commissaging passages. Because one of the things you should pick up from these passages is that the subject of the passage is always God. 
And God is doing something and you are the object. You will receive power. God is at work empowering you. That's the commission. That we would hear that, that we would believe that. Their passive voice, you will be my witnesses. He is going to do the work. Friends, we need to see he's inviting us in. And that's what we're trying to lean into in this series. So as we step in, we've covered the content of evangelism, the gospel. We've covered the challenge of evangelism, fear. And this morning we're going to talk about the concern of evangelism or the motivation What we're going to do is we're going to look at two connected passages in Ephesians 2. Because what I want us to see, what I want us to glean from this, and what I've been praying that we would see very clearly, is first, that we would see and understand what we have in Jesus Christ. That you would have an understanding that it's not just a relationship with God, as if you have a phone, a friend you can call, but that when you have received Christ, you've received a ton of benefits, a ton of life-altering events that have happened in your life. And beloved, when we see that, when we understand that, it starts to contrast really heavily with the stuff of this world. Because the second thing I want us to see is that our unbelieving friends do not know these benefits. Our unbelieving friends do not know our hope. They do not know our peace. They do not know our strength. They do not know our security. Now, I'm not trying to write off unbelievers as if they're insignificant. You'll actually find there are some better moral unbelievers than there are Christians. You'll actually find there are some people who have got a a better strength who don't know Jesus. But I want to talk theologically so that we'd have a greater picture of the fact that we have a greater hope than the stuff of this world. And that greater hope leads to a strength that can't be found here. That's what I'm wanting to point us to This morning, that we would be aware of those things so that we might be aware of what our unbelieving friends are missing. Then it might lead us to a greater desire to participate in what God's doing in evangelism. So as we turn to the word, let's pray about it this morning together. Father, Thank you for gathering us together. And Father, I thank you for all of those people in my life who pointed me to Jesus that I might know salvation, that I might believe in you. Father, I know everyone who believes, believes because somebody told them the truth. Because somebody professed the gospel. And Father, as we gather together, there are people in this room whose moms and dads rightly shared the gospel with them, and we glory in that reality. And Father, there are people in this room whose friends and coworkers and students in school shared the gospel with them. Father, we glory in that. But there's nobody here that knows you and is following you who came to it on their own. Father, you used somebody 
to profess your truth. So Father, would you embolden us? Would you make us passionate about the gospel that refreshes our soul? Would you make us passionate about the gospel that we would be built up and edified by its benefits? That we might more know the peace that you've given us. That we might more know the strength that you've given us. We might more know the hope you've given us. And Father, that we would have a passion to share those things with a world who so desperately needs to see you. Father, you've told us you'd make us fishers of men. Father, you've told us you'll make us powerful witnesses. So, Father, we ask that you would do those things in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you've got your Bible open, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. But you know me, I like context. It's crucial for understanding the Bible, so let me back up a little. Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. It's an interesting church because if you dig into it, you'd find Paul did not plant this church, but he did pastor it. In fact, if you want to dig into the church at Ephesus, you'd find Paul spends two years there pastoring, kind of shepherding this church, and then writes them a letter. Later, you'd find out if you want to track through the scriptures, Timothy then pastors this church. Book of First and Second Timothy, probably written to the Ephesian church. You would also find that John, the disciple, probably pastored this church. First, second, third John, and probably Revelation written to the church at Ephesus. So this is a really unique church that Paul is stepping into. He's trying to exhort. He's trying to encourage. And do you know why? Because they sat at the epicenter of the prosperity of Greece at that time. And if you want to proliferate the gospel into the world, you want to build people up to share the gospel in the world, Ephesus was an extraordinary place to do it. So Paul writes this letter to this church that they would understand who they are in Jesus Christ. He writes this letter so that they would understand the enormous blessings of what it means to follow Jesus. So I want to give you the first part of this. In Ephesians 1, Paul gives you this rich list of blessings. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to listen carefully. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm not a grammarian. That's one sentence in in Greek. 
And actually, give me the next slide. I wanted you to see it all at once. You may not be able to read it all. But I want you to consider this. Because when Paul writes to you that in Christ you have every spiritual blessing, what he's wanting to proclaim to you is that God the Father held nothing back. That he granted everything to you when you believed in Jesus. In fact, we skip forward three verses, we'd find in 113, you were included in Christ when you heard the gospel, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed. You receive these spiritual blessings and he lists them. If you want to make a list, election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, empowerment, and perseverance. And what you see, if you pay attention to this list, And really, go home and read it like 10 times. Is that Jesus has promised these things to you on your belief that is based on no merit of your own. At no point in here is there a conditional clause that says, if you you try hard, if you do this, if you do this. The statement is, having believed, you've received this. So you're to see that having believed in God, he has chosen you. He has claimed you. You belong to him, which is an enormous statement in our culture and our society, because what it should do for us is start to define our worth. It ought to define our value. It ought to define our significance that none of these things should be in question. I mean, some of us know the reality of being in elementary school. You stand on the wall, you're picking teams, and nobody picks you. And it royally stinks. I want you to understand this verse in its essence wants to point to the idea, you stand on that wall, Jesus picks you first. I've got that one. She's mine. I've got that one. He's mine. God the Father has chosen you due to no merit of your own. And it doesn't stop there because he plans to adopt you. I Meaning he wants to bring you into his family. He wants to give you, despite all of your faults, despite all of your failures. Don't forget this is the eternal omnipotent God who knows everything, looking at you and going, I'm adopting that one. That messed up, dirty one, that's the one I want in my family forever. That's the one I want to receive the inheritance of eternity, that one. And he's talking about you. But do you understand what you have in Christ? Because he's rolling this out for you to understand that you have been redeemed. Jesus wants to testify that because of the cross, the penalty for your sin has been met in full, that you've been forgiven. And that he's lavished you with grace. Now, if you were to look up in this little tiny print up here, you would actually see where it says that he lavishes you with grace in all wisdom and insight. If your Bible is open, please underline that. Because what I want you to consider for, for just a moment is when God the Father looks at you, picks you, adopts you, plans to forgive you, bring you into his family, 
show you his mercy and grace despite the fact that you fall short? He does so believing it's wise. Have you considered that? That God the Father might be wise for picking you. I mean, how often do we look around and go, I'm not that great. I mean, I'm shocked Pam married me. Like, I'm shocked. I'm, it's amazing. And my kids don't get a choice, right? They, they, my name's on their birth certificate. But like, the fact that God in all wisdom would do this, like God knows what he's doing when he brings you into the family of God. And he promises to hold on to you. Beloved, I don't know how often we sit and consider all that we have in Christ. It's easy for us just to get caught up in the mundane of life and miss the blessings that we have in Christ that are rich and that are extraordinary and that ought to be life-defining. And this is the kind of stuff we're supposed to really, really lean in and dig in on. This is the stuff you want to journal for hours on. God, what does it mean that you've really wanted to show me your grace and you think it's wise? Well, I don't think it's wise at all. I think it's kind of crazy. But you think it's wise. Apparently, I'm a fool. Paul begins this letter by laying this out. And he finishes chapter 1 with one of my favorite prayers. Praying that, and I'm trying to be quick. Praying that you would be granted wisdom and insight by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit in you would grant you an understanding. That he'd give you insight and wisdom so that your eyes might be opened. Church, listen to me. We can be a little bit like onions, covered with lots and lots of layers. I almost went ogres, but ogres have layers like onions. You're either with me or you're not, it's fine. God wants to open our eyes. Church, we miss the fact that there's something about this life, there's something about the world we walk in on that we tend to forget things. We tend to layer up lenses so that we don't see God for who he is. We see a messed up Ben-like version of it. So Paul prays that you'd be wise, that you'd receive insight, that your eyes might be opened. You'd see clearly. And beloved, what does he want you to see clearly? He wants you to understand the hope that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. He wants you to understand the hope. There's like a whole sermon in that phrase. And he wants you to see that you are his glorious inheritance. That he values you so much. Because you, his glorious inheritance. There's a whole sermon there too. And then thirdly, he prays that you and I might understand the immeasurable greatness of his power. Like even if you just take that phrase, because it's power, and it's great power, but it's actually an immeasurably great power that you have in Jesus Christ. You've been granted in belief. Beloved, 
When we lean into the reality of the gospel, what Paul is putting forth to these Ephesians, Jesus is so worthy of our praise. Jesus is so worthy of our worship. He's so worthy of our delight. He's so worthy of our affection. He's so worthy of our devotion. He's so worthy of our attention, our love. He's worthy because he's accomplished all of these things for us and on our behalf. And none of them are conditional, right? Like this is extraordinary. Paul is painting this enormous, extraordinarily beautiful picture of who you are. And he's like challenging you to believe it. Believe this about yourself. Believe this about what Christ has declared about you. Friends, we'll never mind the depth of all of it. We should spend a lot of time trying, but we'll never mind the depth of all of it. And now just for a moment, having seen Paul paint this enormous picture now, if you're an art fan, think of like the, uh, oh, what's it called? I just lost it. Sistine Chapel. That's what Jesus has done for you. It's enormous. It's, it's huge. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's awe-inspiring. And just for a moment, imagine you don't have any of that. You can be this, or you can be like a piece of cardboard. No choosing. No adoption, no redemption, no forgiveness, no hope, no power. 12 in Ephesians 2, Paul tries to draw that contrast for us. Twice in Ephesians 2, he wants us to see a contrast of everything that's been declared true of us in Jesus. For that's a contrast we want to consider this morning. So let's look at his first contrast. Ephesians 2 verse 1. You've seen the Sistine Chapel. Let's take into consideration the cardboard. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, we painted the picture of what you have in Christ. Paul paints the picture of what you have without him. And we should consider that. We should really consider that. And we should consider the reality of the condition of our unsaved friends. We should consider the reality of our unsaved neighbors. We should consider the reality of our unsaved coworkers. We should consider the reality of our unsaved family. Because Paul writes, you were dead in your sin. He's going to tease that out for us more in a couple of verses. 
But the idea is thick. You weren't sick. You weren't broken. You didn't need improvement. You were dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Nothing. Literally. It's not just a a trite illustration. It's actually a powerful picture to understand that without Christ you are dead. And you are following the ways of the world. Friends, we need to at least acknowledge that our culture is trying to convince us that we should be autonomous, self-sufficient, in-control people. We should be aware of the fact that our culture is preaching these realities to us as if we are sovereign and in control and we're in charge. And yet the scriptures suggest that we go where the wind blows us. And if you go where the wind blows you, you are neither sovereign nor in control or in charge. Consider a kite. Where does a kite go? Where the wind blows it. Following the prince of the power of the air. Paul's trying to paint this picture for us. That the wind is blowing us around and oftentimes we can be completely deceived by it. Whether that's a kite thinking he's in charge or whether it's a a deer following a trail of corn that had been laid out perfectly in front of a deer stand, believing, I'm happy, I'm in charge, I get to eat all this corn I want, walking him to destruction. Or whether it's a fish chasing a lure. Oh, that looks happy, good, I want to choose this delicious-looking yellow thing with a green tail and a spinner. We could be convinced we're choosing our own way all the while... We're being led to slaughter. We're headed to destruction. Paul is trying to take this to its logical conclusion. That because we are selfish, because we're self-occupied, because we believe that we're in control when we pursue the desires of our flesh, we believe they'll be fulfilling, when in reality they're quite literally damning. We become children of wrath. That's the cardboard picture. That's the picture of those who do not believe. That's you prior to belief. That's your neighbor who doesn't believe. And Paul steps into that. To this rebellion to this rejection. And I want you to consider what he says because when you really dig into the first part, you see it. And the second part, you see it. You see this huge contrast. You begin to think, why would God ever want this? Which brings us to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, do you see the message we get to share with dead people? That there is a God who would love you so much that even in your rebellion, even in your rejection, whether it's active or passive, that there is a God who is so full of mercy, so full of great love, that while we are in a crash course with hell, he would send his son to the cross. That you who were once headed for destruction might be, might receive mercy. That you who were once dead might be made alive. That you who are a piece of cardboard, wonder if you had any usefulness at all, might be turned into the Sistine Chapel. He wants us to see this contrast. He wants us to understand that God loves us so much that he's so merciful that he would make a dead man alive and I get that this starts to get big and when it gets big and we get lost and when we get lost we don't even think about its reality. And he does it so that he might lift you up. So that in the coming ages, friends, hear this, for all of eternity, and I don't mean thousands of years, I mean billions and trillions and quadrillions and whatever comes after that, all the way to infinity. For all of eternity, he might show his kindness to you in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is our message. That's the gospel. They would take this and turn it into this. And after walking us through all that we have in Christ, even clarifying grace, grace, it's all grace, he circles back in verse 11. Paints another picture for us. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now there's some language there we don't track well with. There's some language there we don't seem to get. It doesn't fall into our culture. But I want you to see that Paul is circling back to make an argument for us that because of the work of Christ, God the Father has an eternal plan to make all of His people one. To make all of His people one, both Jew and Gentile. Not a contrast we often consider, but I want you to think about it this way. I want to contextualize it a bit for us. There can be a hostility that the holy crowd can have sometimes for the unholy crowd. There could be a hostility that the haves might have for the have-nots. I want you to consider for a moment, 
And if you'll just let me take one snapshot, I want you to consider social media, for example. I don't like to use it as an illustration often, but I want you to consider this. If you were to summarize how people who love Jesus, who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, talk about people, for example, of a different political party. Are we talking about them in a way that could be winsome for the cause of Christ, or are we radically excluding them? I want you to think for a second about people who view the world differently than you do. It could be a gender issue. It could be all kinds of things. By no means am I asking you to ever sacrifice the truth. But oftentimes we lead with the truth so much that we don't understand the truth in love. So we go around with big sticks whacking the world. So the world knows to stay away and never be welcome there. That is the contrast of Jews and Gentiles. That's the people God wants to put together and make one. Do you see that? In the disciples, if you consider the fact that you have a zealot in one part of the room who's passionate about politics, look at the disciples. He's got everything. He mixes them together. These people who never should have ever gotten along. God puts us together. Saying, remember that you were once separated from Christ. Remember that you once did not know the precious intimacy of Christ. You once did not know the filling sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You, at one point, did not know the hope that comes from a suffering when you know Jesus Christ. Paul's painting this picture so that you would understand that compassion would dwell up in you. Remember that you are one time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Think about it this way. At one time you didn't have a church. You didn't have a family. Do you know how many times in a given year I hear the phrase, I don't know how people without churches move. You have a family. There are people who don't. Paul writes, remember that you were strangers to the covenants of the promise. You had no promises. Which means that little book of the promises of God didn't apply to you. The hope that Jesus would never leave you nor forsaken wasn't there for you. The promise that he would uphold you with his righteous right hand wasn't there for you. The promise that he would take all of your suffering and use it for your good and for his glory doesn't exist. There's no hope. There's no God. Paul writes these contrasts for us so that we would see this enormous difference between what you have in Christ and what people who don't have Christ are missing. And even writes it in such a way to challenge the reality that some of us are going to be become so convinced that it's about us. And we need to hold it. And we need to protect it. 
So we don't expose ourselves to things. We don't expo- and I'm not talking about you. Just hear me. Paul resolves this in the gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off. Now if we're going to take a poll and we need to take this poll at some point. I'm not doing it now, but we'll take it someday. There's probably a good group of you who came to Christ because your mom and dad told you about Christ. Can I just step into that and say that there's some weaknesses to that? You don't understand what it's like to be far off. You just don't. You might miss out on that picture of the hopelessness and despair of unbelievers. You don't see it. Now, glory to Christ, he saved you. Glory to Christ, he grabbed you before life got too messy. Praise God for that. Hear me say that in droves. But you're going to be tempted to believe your whole life that people come to Christ because their moms and dads tell them. Which is going to relieve you from the responsibility of telling people about Christ. Because you're going to blame their mom and dad. And church, there's some people here who came to Christ because somebody told them. You have an expectation that somebody tells people about Christ and you're going to walk operationally with an understanding. Somebody told me about Christ. I should tell other people about Christ. People find out about Christ because people tell them. It's a sweet, sweet gift. And we might know what it means to be far off. And we might have all kinds of other lessons we need to learn. I'm not trying to make a contrast that this has got challenges and this one's don't. They all have their challenges. But church, we need to have our mind around the fact that in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, and that far off can be in full rebellion as a high school kid, that far off can be in full rebellion as a college kid, that rebellion can be full rebellion in diapers. Right? That's where you need to say amen. I need you. You who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friends, what resolves our hopelessness, what resolves our lack of promise, what resolves our lack of a people, what resolves our lack of Christ is Jesus. His blood brought us near. His blood has healed us. His blood has saved our soul. It is Christ we proclaim. Always. And we need to have our eyes open to that. We need to be awakened to the reality of that. So friends, as we finish out this morning, as I've been praying about this message, it's my prayer that you and I would we would just revel in Christ. That we'd celebrate Christ. That we'd, we'd just grab onto the richness of what we have in Christ. That our worship might be, I'm setting the table for you, Matt. Our worship might be even really exuberant. I mean, you might like move a little or, you know, whatever that looks like for you. 
I'm just saying turn it up a notch. Because we ought to revel in what Christ has accomplished for us. That ought to be a huge part of our hope. We ought to be reminded that there are people around us who are lost. There are people around us who are lost and need to be found. And like the wise old deer who comes up to the younger guy chasing the coin going, you know, you're going to get shot you go that way. Or the old wise fish who looks at the kid chasing the lure and going, you know, that boat's going to catch you and it's not going to end up well. We have a responsibility to stand up to profess Christ. I have a friend in Christ named Bijou who lives in Western Africa. I know not what her life looks like now. But I know somebody was bold enough to tell her about Christ. Beloved, we need to be reminded that we've been called fishers of men. We need to be reminded that there are people who will believe because of the words we share. We need to be reminded that we have received power to be His witnesses everywhere we go. And we need to be reminded there are bijous out there who need to be set free. And there are Brad's. And Stephanie's and Jackie's and Steve's and David's and Jill's and Jennifer's and Tyler's and Grace's and Addison's and all kinds of names. People who need to hear of the love and the redemption of Jesus Christ so that they could know that though they might feel like cardboard, there's a God who would love them so much that he could turn them into the Sistine Chapel just by believing. Well, I want to close this morning with some words from the book of Jude. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Beloved, I want to write to you and challenge you to contend for the faith. You may well be the only believer in your family. You may well be the only believer in your cul-de-sac. You may well be the only believer on your street, in your workplace. There might be two or three of you. There might be ten. But there are unbelievers around us who are looking for hope. And some of them, like the lady who cut my hair, are going to shut it off quickly. And that's okay. Our call is to be faithful, to share of a God who would take cardboard and turn it into the Sistine Chapel. But we have a beautiful, amazing God. We'll get to worship him here in a little bit. Get to continue worshiping here in a minute. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I'm so thankful for your word. Father, in your word, you tell us who you are. Father, would you make us more diligent about studying it? That we grab onto these truths and we'd hold onto them tightly. Father, that you would be at work in each of us, reminding us of your adoption of us. That we'd be reminded that you've redeemed us. We'd be reminded that you've forgiven us. We'd be reminded that you've lavished us with all grace in all wisdom and insight. 
Father, there's no one here on accident. Father, you've, by your desire, by your design, you've brought people to know you, to worship you, to love you. Father, as we go forth from this place, I'm reminded of the early church, Acts 8, talks about the fact, and, and as they scattered everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus. Father, would you make that our life? Would you make that our calling? Would you make that our mantra? Father, that we would declare the glorious work of Christ everywhere we go. So thankful for a good salvation, for a rich salvation, for all that we have in Christ. We worship you, Father, and Son, and Spirit. So in your name we pray. Amen.